The Future of Cities is presented by Katera. Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Twilio, the leading cloud communications platform. This Wednesday and Thursday, Twilio is hosting Signal, a customer and developer conference that explores the intersection of technology, innovation, and communications. Visit signal.twilio.com and use the promo code MISSION20 at checkout to receive 20% off your tickets. We'll see you there. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Jed Halbert. At the time of our interview, Jed was serving as the group executive for planning, housing, and development for the city of Detroit. He spoke to us about the challenges and opportunities of rebuilding a city like Detroit and what it means for other cities in the future. He also told us why cities should become less like the suburbs. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Jed, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Could you give your full name and title for the audience? Sure. My name is Jed Halbert, and I'm the Group Executive for Planning, Housing, and Development at the City of Detroit. Fantastic. And could you share a little bit about the scope of your responsibilities for the City of Detroit? Bureaucratically, what this means is I oversee the planning department and the housing department at the city. I also manage uh, the relationship with our nonprofit economic development corporation, which does business development, small business promotion, and commercial and industrial real estate development, uh, and oversee a couple other smaller teams, an office of immigrant affairs that we created, and another team that we stood up in the last couple of years, which is the office of mobility innovation. That's about bringing new innovations in mobility, large or small, everything from electric scooters to autonomous vehicles and, and deploying them in Detroit. So, you know, beyond just the organizational lines, what that means in practice is my team is really responsible for articulating and executing the strategy that is turning around Detroit, that is trying to drive population and job growth, put the city on a stable fiscal future, and also really create economic opportunity for the many existing residents of Detroit who stayed in the city throughout the many years of downturn. And you work out of the mayor's office. Correct. Um, you know, why does that kind of fall under the mayor's office and kind of just explain that dynamic a little bit? Well, really, I mean, it's central to what I think the agenda of any mayor should want to do is creating opportunity for the residents. And a lot of what you do when you're running a city as a mayor is, of course, doing all the basics, right? Making sure the streets are paved, the streetlights are on, the cops show up, the ambulances show up, the parks are mowed. But I think beyond that, there's also a responsibility to articulate a vision of what the city should look like going forward, not just what the built environment and physical aspects of the city should look like, although that's obviously very important and one of the most tangible things, but what it should be like as a place to live and what the, not just the quality of life should be, but the quality and quantity of opportunity for the residents of the city. And I think that brings you back to a lot of the central questions of, of urban planning, of using the regulatory and financial power of the city to drive uh, and channel real estate development and housing, 
get to into questions of affordable housing, of economic development in terms of how to create jobs in the city and how to make those jobs accessible to residents of the city. So, you know, I think what my team does, none of it would be possible if my colleagues didn't do all the great work they're doing in the police department and fire department, et cetera. And really building on that foundation, it puts us in a place where we can, you know, do what I said of articulate a vision for the city and start to execute on that, uh, ultimately to, to create opportunity for all of our residents and voters. You know, it was really interesting. In one of the previous conversations we had, we talked about the idea of city planning and that vision that you're talking about and how oftentimes the plans for a city are not even achieved in 20, 30, 50, 100 years, that the plan for the future that is set out like now might not be achieved kind of right away. Is that something that like you were aware of in your time that like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be working on things that are just setting in motion plans for the future that, you know, you want to have short term wins and medium term wins, but things in future that are going to be looking at how, what does this look like 100 years from now? A- absolutely. I mean, it's rare that we would think in a 100 year timeline, but the point is absolutely right. We think in timelines that are well beyond, you know, the political term of one elected official in office. And, and that's just the reality of how long a lot of these projects take to execute and how long the implications have in terms of the decisions that we make now. Definitely having implications 100 years from now, even though that's not you know often how far out we think of it. You know, my, my own personal previous experience, I'd served previously in the mayor's office in the Bloomberg administration as a senior advisor to the deputy mayor for economic development, which is analogous to the role that I have now in Detroit. And there's many projects I worked on there in you know, 2006, seven, and eight, that when I go back to New York now, you, you see them finally coming to fruition because that's just the reality when you're doing large scale infrastructure and real estate, among other things, it takes that long to pan out. And you also in a place like Detroit, see some of the negative long-term aspects. You look at the planning decisions some of our predecessors made that I think made the city less hospitable to residents which are not unique, by the way. I think many other cities at the same era were making the same decisions. And you say these are decades-long impacts for the city that are really hard to reverse. So it makes you very thoughtful and hopefully somewhat humble about what you're doing, knowing that everyone that came before was hopefully equally confident and smart. And a number of the things you know they did in, in the long run turned out to be not great ideas. I, I definitely want to get back into the things that you did in New York later in the episode. But I kind of want to focus on this idea of, you know, for lack of a better term, sins of the father, but this idea of what happened in the past. Like, tell me a little bit about Detroit's story and what were some of the problems that you were facing when you came into the position? And I know some of those things, you know, were set in motion years and years ago, but what were some of the things that historically led to this position of where Detroit was? Sure. So let me give you the the sort of take a step back and give the long historic arc. So Detroit in the first half of the 20th century was really something pretty close to what Silicon Valley is now. A lot of the major innovations in the economy were happening in the city of Detroit and in the surrounding areas. And it was a huge economic growth engine. And of course, that peaked in you know, what people would know is the arsenal of democracy phase when Detroit led the industrial development around World War II. And then into the 50s and the prosperity after the Second World War, it continued to be really one of the richest cities, not just in America, but on the planet. It was a, 
a city, uh, a middle-class city, a city where everybody had a job effectively. I mean, it was essentially a full employment city at its peak for many years. Everybody had a single-family home. That was one of the distinctive built environment patterns of Detroit, is that it was really a predominantly a single-family environment. It didn't go high-rise in the way that New York and Chicago and San Francisco did. And it was a place where you could live a really great life as an auto worker or someone else affiliated with it. It was a great place to be a middle-class person. You had your own house. There was a great school system, great park system. People had cottages on lakes in northern Michigan. And then it began to turn, as it did for many cities in the 50s, really in the 60s and 70s. And it was a product of a lot of different things. I mean, the federal government supported the building of the highways that really made it easier for the suburbs to develop and led people to choose to live outside. There was a very deliberately anti-urban and and arguably quite explicitly racist federal housing strategy that redlined urban areas with minority populations and made it easier to finance development in suburban environments. And I think also there was just a cultural moment, a wave of obsession with the car and the freedom that implied, which married to the infrastructure, the interstates, and the federal housing policy produced a, a significant outflow of population. That's really a trend that happened in many major American cities, the older cities of the East Coast and the Midwest. It's, it happened in Washington, D.C. and in New York City and Chicago. It just happened a lot more in Detroit, in part because of the predominance of the local auto industry, I would argue. And what happened is you had a city that at its peak of population around 1960 hit almost 2 million people and was one of the five or so largest cities in America They lost over, I should say, we lost well over a million people, and the population today is under 700,000. That's remarkable. It's incredible. I mean, the the physical pattern for people who haven't had a chance to visit Detroit is really unlike any other place in America. You've got some beautifully preserved and gorgeous neighborhoods that reflect the wealth that this city had in the first half of the 20th century, and then you turn the corner and it's just emptiness. And, you know, in practical terms... What happens when people leave the city is that ultimately there's not a market clearing price for housing and people stop paying their property taxes and the last owner ultimately gives the property up and it ends up in city ownership. So in the years leading up to the Mayor Duggan administration, which took office in 2014, through tax foreclosure, the city ended up owning almost 100,000 former single family homes. Oh now, my goodness. It's a large number. For, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of those homes were already gone. They had been demolished, uh, deliberately demolished by the city or by other actors, or they had been effectively demolished just by decades of nature and entropy taking them down. But there were still probably 40,000 actual houses that the city owned at the start of our administration, in addition to almost 60,000 empty parcels that used to be houses. That's absolutely remarkable. It is. And it's, it's you know, challenging to run an environment with such a low level of density. And, you know, the remarkable thing in some ways leading up to the bankruptcy in 2013 is that the city didn't go bankrupt earlier. Actually, they managed to maintain some level of fiscal stability over the decades while by cutting back city services and city expenses as the tax base dropped. But ultimately, you hit a point where the tax base fell so low relative to the legacy debts of the city, both the, the legacy actual bonded debt of the city, but also the legacy pension and other obligations, medical costs for former employees, et cetera, that it was just not a financially sustainable situation. And it meant that in order to meet the debt obligations and in order to make the pension payments, the city was not providing enough money to pay for very basic services. So roughly half of the streetlights in the city were out. And you can imagine 
what that does, not just for the reality of public safety, but also for the perception of public safety in neighborhoods that are mostly empty to have the streets literally dark at night is a terrible thing uh, and encourages even more outflow from the city. The police response time was unacceptably too high. The ambulance response time was unacceptably too high. The city had stopped mowing. I mean, forget maintaining the parks. The city had stopped even mowing a lot of the parks just because there wasn't money. And that led to the point where in 2013, uh, Detroit became the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history. So when did you start working with the city? So I joined in in the middle of the bankruptcy period in early 2014. So uh, at the end of 2013, the city went into bankruptcy and also Mayor Duggan was elected. And just to hit the, the personal side of the story briefly, I am from the Detroit area originally and and had a real attachment to my hometown, saw some of the potential and worked in urban development and real estate and economic development. And to me, I saw these two things, these two really essential changes happening together. Number one is that there was a bankruptcy. And so there was a formal legal process to restructure the debts and other obligations that could create a sustainable fiscal base for the city. Number two, the mayor was elected. And although I didn't know him at the time, he had a great reputation as a real pragmatic and ambitious and aggressive politician who could really get stuff done in his previous roles. And actually, to add a third one, at that time, you could already see some of the green shoots coming up in the city that thanks to the efforts of previous administrations and some of our other partners in the nonprofit and philanthropic and corporate world, you could start to see the initial signs of reinvestment in the city. And so I felt at the time, if, if this city's ever going to really grow again and create opportunity for its residents, now is the time. I mean, make hay while the sun shines. A new mayor and a bankruptcy restructuring on top of a little bit of momentum, this, these things are not going to come together again ever. And so I decided to, to jump into it and see what I could do to help. When you look at that landscape, it seems like you had a very optimistic view, despite how kind of dire the circumstances were, where, you know, you got to hit the tear button and say, hey, how do we actually build this in a sustainable way? What were some of the problems that you looked at? What was what was kind of the first steps of rebuilding? Sure. Let me say the, I think it context for why I was optimistic, or the reason why I was optimistic provides context for where we expended our energies. The reason I was optimistic is, if you had gone to Washington, D.C. in 1995, or if you'd gone to New York City in 1990 or thereabouts, and you'd said, are these cities that are capable of growth? A lot of people would have laughed you out of the room and said, of course not. And what you've seen is not just those two cities, but those two as examples have really swelled in population and prosperity due to a whole bunch of structural changes, uh, demographic changes with fewer households having school-aged children, and a, a cultural predisposition towards urban living, which I think is really a mean reversion going on. In some ways, what happened in the suburbanization of America is sort of the exception to the rule that over centuries of human urban history, it was mostly that people wanted to be in the city when they could, because that was the place that provided the greatest opportunity. It was a vibrant and diverse lifestyle. You could be the sort of person you wanted in addition to the economic opportunity. So I, you've seen this play out in New York and Boston and Chicago and DC, et cetera. And I thought these same structural forces still apply in Detroit. You've got a huge metro area where if you draw the lines a little bit liberally, you've got almost 5 million people in the metro area. It's still a very large metro area because when people left the city, they mostly didn't leave Michigan. They stayed in the vicinity. And I thought, 
what is stopping these broader forces from playing out in Detroit is not that Detroit is somehow immune from them. It's that there's specific things blocking it, which uh, informed exactly what we decided to go do. So part of it is very basic service provision, as I mentioned, that you know, I don't care how much culturally cultural predisposition you have to live in a city. If the streetlights are off and the parks aren't mowed and the cops don't show up, forget it, right? I mean, that's just not a value proposition that you're going to pursue. On top of that, once you get some of those basic issues addressed, and where my team spends its time is build a city that essentially provides urban life. And what that means is dense, walkable, vibrant, and diverse. And if you can provide that sort of living environment, as other cities have done, like I mentioned, there is a very proven track record of, of a lot of people choosing to live in that. No one chooses to live in a, in a center city because it's cheaper and safer and the taxes are lower and the parking is easier, right? You have to find a different way to compete for people. And what successful cities have shown is play to your strengths as a city. And if you offer that urban lifestyle, people will respond. And so the question was, how can we use our resources financial and regulatory, and the resources of our partners in the nonprofit and corporate community to essentially catalyze or restart that urban life that had once existed in many parts of Detroit in its heyday. That is a critical insight. And it's it's really well said because I think a lot of times people try to compete with things that they cannot compete with. Like the perfect example is, you know, cities like Oakland, for example, and I, so I was born and raised in Oakland, so that I have it's a similar sort of feeling where Oakland in the 80s was not a place where lots of people wanted to go and had similar issues, and now is like a thriving community and has always been very proud, but now has additional things where you can say, like, what are the strengths of all the things that you said? But for people who want to be in cities, specifically with young people, they have a choice. They're going to go to the place that has all of those things. Exactly right. They're going to go to Chicago. And that's the thing. Like if you look at Chicago, Chicago is full of people who are from Michigan, went to Michigan and Michigan State and all of those schools. Like they go to Chicago instead of going to Detroit, or that's what they were doing because of all the reasons that you just said. But the things that, hey, I want, I need a car or I, you know, want to have good parking or I want to have a single family home or all of those things. You know, young people don't care about that. They don't care about the school system. They don't care about those sort of things. They want to go meet other young people. And I think that when you see the revitalization of some of these cities, you can just look at how fun is it for a young person to be able to get out, walk around, meet people, do things, have fun. And if you can do that, it's not a very difficult thing. And to, to finalize my point, like Oakland, downtown Oakland, uptown Oakland, there didn't used to be like an uptown Oakland. It wasn't, that wasn't right. a thing when I was growing up. Like there was no uptown, there was just downtown and downtown wasn't that great. And then now you have different sections. There's like almost branding that happens of like, oh, I like to hang out in this area and this area and this area. Like that sort of stuff is very claimed by and not just young people, but but both sides where they claim these areas is like, well, this is where these people hang out. And this is where these people hang out. Like this is, you know, this is where if you want to go to the club or go to this place, like people, I think, forget about the fact that cities do have those strengths. And if you build them to be something different, it's just not going to be a good fit. And I love the point about safety because that is one of the things that people always talk about. But it's like inherently cities will not be safer. There's no way to make it safer. But that's not why you live in the downtown area of a city. And you would go to the suburb or wherever it is 
if you wanted to be completely safe or as safe as you could possibly be, you would go somewhere else. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's spot on. I agree completely. And I think in many walks of life, I think it's a true rule that if you try to compete in a way that is not that doesn't play to your strengths and isn't true to what you are, it's not going to be a successful strategy. And that applied to cities too. I think not just in Detroit, a lot of city leaders in the 70s and 80s and 90s looking at the success of suburbs said, okay, let's think about why suburbs are successful. It's because parking is so easy and available. So let's tear down some of our denser areas and build places that have a lot more parking that are more strip mall oriented, for example. And you're always going to lose because you're going toe to toe in a game that you can't win because you're never going to have easier parking than someone who's building in a greenfield environment in the suburbs that doesn't have a dense grid of urban streets. But you can never retrofit a new suburb to have a dense grid of urban streets. That's just a level of change that can't happen. So you need to take advantage of that strength. You know, This was a city at one point where people primarily walked around or used mass transit. Detroit had an amazing streetcar network, as a lot of other cities did, right? I mean, it's similar to the story of LA when they ripped out all their streetcars also, that it was a town that was dense, that people got around on streetcar or on foot. And those Urban forms are still there waiting to be realized, to be filled back in. The spaces are waiting to be reactivated. You just have to figure out how to do it and to play to that strength to be really competitive. I'd also say it's it's definitely the younger population and the sort of cliche, which it gets said so many times that it sounds cliched, but it's absolutely 100% true that in a search for talent, companies want to go to where their younger employees want to work and that we've been huge beneficiaries of that. Just this morning, I was in our old Michigan Central train station, uh, which has been one of the great symbols of blight, Detroit's old main train station that Ford announced recently they're purchasing and rehabbing to be the Ford uh, sort of autonomous vehicle development center to provide the place where the software behind autonomous and other advanced vehicles get developed because they know when they're recruiting people like that, it needs to be in a really compelling urban environment where they can have fun and where they were really excited to go work. And these are people who could work in Pittsburgh or Chicago or the Valley outside San Francisco. And we need to have a compelling proposition here and Ford's playing to that. I'd also say it's it's broader than that. I mean, we've seen one of the interesting trends in Detroit is families whose kids go off to college, a lot of the older couples are saying, okay, we've got this huge suburban home. We can't walk to anything. This isn't actually that much fun anymore now that our kids are out of here. Let's buy a downtown condo and enjoy the resurgence going on where we can walk to the bars and restaurants and walk along the riverfront and do all that sort of stuff as well. How do you look at planning for that? Like, How do you lure people to build new bars and new restaurants and and add density of experiences into a downtown area? How do you you know, bring people and make incentives for them to do that stuff. Because I, I mean, I know, and again, this is, you know, I've, I've lived a lot of places for my time in the military. And I can say that the best cities have those different areas where, you know, you can walk two blocks and you can reach a bunch of different places, but you have to kind of get that density. You have to entice people to build those places. How do you do that? You really do it by, at least the way that we've done it, uh, particularly in Detroit, it's arguably easier in other places where more of the built environment still exists. In Detroit, where there was so much abandonment over so many years, a clean slate is a phrase that people don't like in Detroit for obvious reasons because there's still over 600,000 people who live here. But there is a lot of empty space that needs to get filled up. And it's hard to be the first entrepreneur to go fill that empty space. That's a pretty daunting proposition from a business plan and a daunting proposition to get financed. So what what we've done 
is really layer and focus multiple different types of investment in really tightly defined geographies to create catalytic change. And the layering and the focusing means that, first of all, literally, there's so much going on in one area that there's physically a lot of transformation, but it also creates confidence among the entrepreneurs and investors and developers and gives them a hook about where to focus that allows the public investment that we're making to really be leveraged by private investment. So what this means in practice in, in downtown Detroit, and actually midtown Detroit is just like the uptown Oakland example, You know, for long-term residents of Detroit for decades, it was like, what is midtown? And midtown is now considered one of the most vibrant neighborhoods here. So it's really come back in the last several years. And it meant invest in the transportation assets in that neighborhood. So we put in a, a streetcar line down Woodward Avenue, which is one of the main drags, something that was really led even before this administration by private sector partners who recognize, recognize the power of that. Uh, invest in some of the local parks and in some of the local streetscapes to build out more attractive places to walk and to shop, to eat outdoors, to ride your bike, et cetera. And then put money, initially subsidy money, whether it's tax abatements or direct grants from the city or philanthropy into the first catalytic projects. So provide support for those first bars and restaurants opening up, provide financial support for the first developers who are renovating the vacant apartment building and filling it back up with people or renovating the old commercial storefront and filling it up with another store in the neighborhood. And you do that with the goal of market response. And as rents rise, the goal is that you get to a point where you can wean the developers and investors off those subsidies because you've achieved liftoff. There's a critical mass of activity. The rents justify market rate returns on development, and you can take a step back. And that is precisely what has happened in Midtown and Downtown Detroit. As interest has surged, the apartments are fully occupied, the, the restaurants and stores are doing great business, and developers are really responding to the higher rent environment and building into that. And as that has happened, we've been able to reduce the amount of direct subsidy going into that neighborhood and articulate a strategy for neighborhoods outside of the greater downtown where the majority of Detroiters live to try to take that same recipe for success and spread it across other parts of the city. Let's switch gears here to talk about affordable housing and housing. How have you viewed that? What type of innovations have you seen with affordable housing? I mean, obviously, you know, in previous conversations on the podcast, we've talked with folks about the massive need for housing worldwide. You're talking about, you know, millions and millions and millions of people that are coming, you know, almost similar to coming online, right? They're coming into, into housing. In America, you're seeing massive deltas where there's need for livable housing. How did you look at affordable housing in Detroit and like how did you plan for that with, you know, the future in in mind? We've really thought about it in a way you know, similar to some of the other points I addressed about looking at what has happened in other cities. And you have, I think, broadly two groups of cities in the U.S. You've got the cities that are so successful, like New York or San Francisco, that property prices have gotten to a point where, I mean, just would have been absolutely unimaginable 20 or 30 years ago that people in New York would be paying what they're paying. And then you've got cities like Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland, et cetera, where prices are still very, very low. So even given the renewal that's gone on in Detroit in the last four or five years, there is not a issue of unaffordable housing. I mean, the average cost of housing in Detroit is still probably 
if not the lowest, among the lowest of the 30 or 40 largest American cities. But what we've said is, and what Detroit residents are very aware of, and local elected officials like our city council are very aware of, is we've seen this movie before, right? We've seen what's happened in Chicago, in New York, et cetera. If things continue to work here, we know where this is going. And so the number one lesson for us is get ahead of the curve. That when you start playing catch up with affordable housing issues, it is extremely expensive to keep up with the private markets, that the private markets are pouring so much money into market rate housing in places. Uh, and really, the, the interest of people who want to live in market rate housing is so high, the rents go through the roof, land prices go through the roof, and then the city shows up and wants to build affordable housing, and it becomes very, very expensive. So the most important thing we've done is said that right from the very start, if you come to Detroit and you look at the housing prices and you look at the amount of vacancy, you're going to say factually there is no affordable housing crisis today. That's absolutely right. But we know if what we're doing works, there will be an issue in the future. So let's start planning for that now. So we launched two funds hand in hand earlier this year that really capture the vision of what we're trying to do. One is called our Strategic Neighborhood Fund, which is our growth-oriented fund. It's $130 million to take the lessons from Midtown and Downtown about how you layer investment to create self-sustaining growth in certain in 10 target neighborhoods around the city to really create these dense nodes of walkable urban development that can then grow on their own. The fund that is with it is something called the Affordable Housing Leverage Fund, which is $250 million. And it's our commitment to say several things. Number one, every regulated affordable housing unit in the city of Detroit today will be preserved. And a lot of them are already located in midtown and downtown where rents are starting to rise. And the owners are saying, hey, when I'm no longer legally required to keep this affordable, I'm going to go make some money and turn this into market rate. And we're saying we're going to raise all the money necessary through city funds and private partners to preserve every single affordable housing unit that exists today. And number two, we're we're committed to make sure that out of all new units coming online in the city of Detroit, at least 20% of them are affordable to people making at or less than 80% of area median income. And a lot of them are affordable to lower income people as well. And we can deliver affordable housing units in Detroit, given our land values today, at a much more inexpensive price than what you could do in a place like New York. So it's really trying to get ahead of the curve and make sure that growth plus inclusion and a deliberate strategy to avoid displacement is baked in from the very first inning of what is going to be a pretty long game here. That's amazing. I mean, that is really transformational because I think that you're exactly right that the short-term thinking of, hey, things are going well, let's just keep rolling and not think about and kind of kick the can does not work, right? I mean, it's not so simple as if you build it, they will come. But at a certain point, once things become, once that kind of critical mass that you talked about happens, there is going to be, and as you've already started to see there, and we've seen in other cities, there is a sort of exodus from other cities to go to move to different places. I mean, we, we see it all the time with people talking about how, you know, they're leaving the Bay Area because it's so expensive. It's like that is both completely under understated and overstated at the same time, right? Yes, that right. does happen. People people do move to cities because they want different, because they have different advantages or they have different, you know, cost of living or whatever it is. The vast majority of the time, it's because they have a better job. People, generally speaking, will not take worse jobs unless the cost of living is so significantly different, which it sometimes is, that that's the case. So you have to just look at, well, how will this look in a time horizon that is far enough that 
you know, if it gets back up to 2 million people, what will that look like? I mean, is that exactly. the type of thinking that you're, that you're doing there? I mean, if it, it used to be 2 million people, the carrying capacity is obviously more than that. So, you know, the met, like you said, the metro area is 5 million people. If we don't plan for a 2 million person city, then we're, you know, failing to plan, right? I, it's exactly that sort of thinking. So, you know, our, we think inside, I mean, as you say, the city is built for 2 million people. We got room to grow for a long time. And I think it's a great indicator that even if we are wildly successful, as I hope we are in terms of attracting new residents and keeping all the existing residents here, it's never going to be a housing crisis like in New York or a San Francisco because there's just more land here relative to demand for a very long time to come. But you're certainly going to see pockets of the city where prices go up very dramatically has already started happening uh, and you want to get ahead of it. And it, it goes back to our core mission of why are we doing all this? Why do you bother? Why do we care about growing the city? And it's it's more than just the emotional attachment that not just people in the city have to Detroit, but I think people across America and the world have to Detroit as this great symbol of American industrialization and opportunity and the cultural resonance, the music scene and everything else. It's really about providing opportunity for existing residents. And we fail at that mission if those existing residents can't stay and enjoy the rebound. Moreover, a lot of the research indicates when you look at what drives economic mobility, one of the best things you can do for economic mobility is live in a mixed income environment. And mixed income neighborhoods are just not the way most Americans live. And we've got the opportunity to build mixed income neighborhoods in Detroit by finding ways to make sure that all the existing residents can stay as people fill in the spaces around them to try to build these places that are very vibrant, that are very prosperous, but are definitively mixed income and diverse ethnically and racially and provide opportunity for all the existing residents, as well as new people who want to come to Detroit to enjoy what we're doing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that that is an often forgotten aspect of the importance of a vibrancy and, and allure of cities. I mean, that is, you know, I think that as we look at the history of, you know, humankind, you look at the reason why those cities, like mega cities, you know, back then, and then you have this idea of mega cities going forward, that these huge places generally near water where people were coming from all walks of life to trade and do different things. There's a huge advantage to having that. And it makes them more livable, more exciting, more interesting, and it makes the people happier and serving the needs of those people is really important. How do you see technology coming to play with that? And we'll talk, we'll talk driverless cars in, in a second here, but with the idea of like the rise of smart cities and technology and embracing technology, how do you see that play out in the continued growth of Detroit? Part of it in really basic ways. And we've got, you know, in Detroit, even after the bankruptcy restructuring, we just don't have infinite resources. I mean, no one running a city has infinite resources. So it's a problem that everybody shares, but I do think it's somewhat more acute here, even after the bankruptcy. So we are very, very pragmatic about where we focus our attention. And so we're using technology in a lot of really basic ways to improve the lives of city residents and to improve the way we do city services. And it's interesting, in, in today's environment, even in a city where the poverty rate is very high, the large majority of people have smartphones and have access to at least some data plans. So yes. one of the programs we've rolled out is something called Improve Detroit, where you can use your smartphone to complain about potholes on your street, to complain about uh, streetlights being off, and a whole bunch of other really basic quality of life issues. And it gets fed straight into the work orders for the relevant departments, and more importantly, produces a set of metrics and statistics about how long were these work orders open, how long did it take to get the pothole fixed, how long until the streetlight got fixed, which goes straight to the mayor and gets reviewed regularly in cabinet. 
So if you're running the department where your metrics are dropped, it's a great opportunity to be embarrassed in front of all your colleagues as the mayor asks you why it's taking longer to fix the streetlights there. It's a really effective management tool, and it's a super basic piece of technology. I mean, I'm sure if you looked at the app, it would look like an app from several years ago, and it's meant to run on people's older smartphones that don't have a ton of data access, but it works, and a lot of people in Detroit use it. And when you go to community meetings and you say, who here has downloaded Improved Detroit and has actually used Improved Detroit, you generally see a forest of hands go up in the air as people are using it to provide real-time feedback about what's going on in the city. We use the same thing in Oakland. I mean, we have something very similar in Oakland, and our HOA sends it out all the time. Like, if you see something, say something. I mean, the idea that everyone in the city is now literally connected through their mobile devices, or the vast majority, that everyone is a sensor, that everyone can see things, a variety of different things. It always comes down to potholes, because uh, every city, it always comes down to The metaphorical important issue and the literal important issue of fixing potholes. It's a, you know, it it would be, that would be the ultimate litmus test, right? Is like, you know, the litmus test for, for a city is how many potholes do they have? Um, But yeah, no, I mean, we, we use that in Oakland. I mean, one of the things that I thought was so interesting in talking to WeWork and Lyft and Airbnb and some of these organizations is how much data they have about the cities that they're in. And I think that there's going to be and it's something that we're really, really interested in with the future of cities is there is going to be a time in the extremely near future where those type of companies have so much data on the cities that if they're partnering with the cities themselves to say, hey, we know how many people are using rooms in the city. We know how many people are using office buildings, how many, not just office buildings, actual rooms. I mean, with the technology that WeWork uses, you're all booking all of your rooms via an application. right? So you know actually how many rooms are being booked at any given time, how many conference rooms are being booked. You know, with Lyft, they can see traffic patterns and change those with the, with the press of a button. They can say, hey, don't drop off on Market Street. Don't do these things. I mean, how do you view those type of technologies as a city and there's possibilities that you don't need to build all of it yourself. Like we don't need to be the ones that build every single piece of this, that there's ways that we can have smart strategic partnerships with private companies that can really boister the work of the government and not have to rely on things that really aren't necessarily the core competency of a city. So just to give a couple examples. So in Detroit, One of our greatest challenges I'd mentioned earlier, the quantity of foreclosed properties we have, we want to preserve as many of them as we can, but a lot of them, the reality is they're not coming back for such a long time that they just need to be demolished. So how do you, across 40,000 properties, prioritize a demolition pipeline at scale? And we've got funding where we're demolishing, on average, we've probably been doing around 100 houses a week. So it's a pretty sizable effort. And you can't literally have people check on each house across a 40,000 house pipeline. You need some way to aggregate it. So we've been accessing data from another source is the US post office and other providers to say, who's getting package delivery at houses? Who's getting electric service? Accessing third-party sources of data to produce basically a ranking of homes from ones that we think are still probably occupied in a decent shape to ones that haven't had various services in a very long time and probably reflect that to allow us to do an initial sorting that makes the management of the demolition pipeline much more efficient. And we also, I meant, you know, I know you mentioned you want to get into autonomous vehicles later and whenever you'd like to do that, it's big yeah, and focus yeah. for us. Sure. I mean, I think this is one of the, and I, I know I'm not 
unique in this way, one of the most interesting areas for cities and one of the giant question marks of how it's going to play out and what it means for urban development. I mean, just like dropping the interstates in 50 years ago had a huge impact, the ultimate long-run impact of autonomous vehicles, I think, could be similarly significant, although not in exactly the same way. And we have been doing partnerships with Lyft. I mean, we have, take our bus system. So we have essentially, you have in Detroit, for context, very highly decentralized jobs. So a lot of the jobs during the downturn moved out of Detroit, so they're out in the suburbs. You have very low car ownership rates in the city because of significant poverty levels and because of a quirk in Michigan law that makes auto insurance pretty expensive, which is ironic in the automotive capital of America that we are trying to fix legislatively in Lansing. Uh, and you've <laughs> got no regional transit system. So it's you know if you were a diabolical genius, you couldn't design a more effective poverty trap, which is disperse all the jobs, provide no regional transit, and then make sure that it's too expensive for people of limited means to afford to own a car. We're doing several things around that. Part of it is attracting jobs back into the city, but we need to make it easier to get around for people without cars. We're running a bus system which covers a very big city across 140 square miles, and a lot of it is very low density. It is an extremely inefficient service model for us to run a bus, which is mostly empty, down a street, which is mostly empty. But the reality is that's an essential service for the people who live on that street to be able to get to work and not spend three hours doing it on the way there and on the way back. So we're testing models with Lyft and other providers to say, what if we modulate the service model? What if we provide high-frequency, fixed-line bus service on the main corridors, and then we have feeder routes where you've got Uber pool or shared lift rides like Liftline, taking people from lower density neighborhoods with a lower cost structure and bringing them out to a higher cost structure fixed line route where you end up getting a lower cost per ride because of the level of occupancy of the vehicle. Uh, this is exactly why we created the Office of Mobility Innovation is to test these things, to take our limited means and say, can we use these new technologies really to help people ultimately get to a job and do it in a way that doesn't break the budget of the city? It's exactly right. And it's the idea that there is a one-size-fits-all solution exactly. for transportation has been at the crux of why transportation has stalled in big cities for so long. Everyone complains about the public transit system du jour of their place. I mean, I, I think maybe Chicago is the only one where everyone always talks about how great it is. But but the idea that this like last mile problem is a huge, huge issue. And the fact that, hey, maybe buses shouldn't run out into far into the suburbs, or maybe there are certain types of light rail that can move farther out. And then maybe the rest can be done through you know, autonomous vehicles or however. I mean, those type of, it's very complex and it's unique to each city. And that's part of the thing that it requires a lot of thought and planning from different organizations to say what actually is the best way to do this. And it's not a silver bullet and it won't be a silver bullet. And like, even with the rise of autonomous vehicles, that's still far enough away that there's going to be a like a mass density of those in which nobody's going to be driving or anything like that. But in the interim, with things like fixed routes, it can move the needle in a major way. And you're also talking about 40,000 deaths a year that occur from, from driving cars. So it also makes us safer, by the way. Do you completely think agree. that... Right, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say completely agreed. And I think in Detroit, so I think a couple things. One is you're absolutely right. There's no silver bullet. And it's interesting... You know, we've rolled out a couple of the basic new transportation modes here, right? Rolled out a bike share system. We just actually, in this past week, saw our first bird electronic scooters show up on the streets 
uh, after we issued some regulations allowing them in specified ways. And we've got Lime scooters showing up in a week or two. And mostly people like them. You get to these occasional naysayers that's like, well, not everyone can get to work on a scooter. And you're like, well, exactly. I mean, I don't expect everyone to, right? The whole point is some people like the scooter, some people like a bus, some people drive themselves, some people take Uber. I mean, there's going to be a whole bunch of different modes. And the nice thing in Detroit, even as we're trying to build density, we're coming from a place where there is so much street capacity that you can actually experiment with these different modes without dealing with congestion. And we're beginning to have some congestion issues downtown, but it's, you know, it's all relative, right? Detroit or see the congestion at downtown Detroit, it's nothing like what exists in other denser cities on the East Coast or West Coast, for example. And so we've got the, we've got the road, we've got the bandwidth in terms of the physical width of the road to be able to try some of these things that we can have shared ride lift vehicles connecting to a bus and a dedicated transit line, all of which can move freely without congestion because there's enough room to do that. You know, what we're trying to do is bake in some of this wisdom and innovation around how we use our streets so that as density builds up around it, it doesn't just become a sort of single person in a single car congestion scene like it is in so many other places or Uber-driven congestion scene where it's just one person sitting in the back of a car driven by one person. There's multiple modes using the street that is as efficient as possible as the city flushes in around that. And I think that there's a quick knee-jerk reaction to legislate some of these things that I think is misguided because I think that it's the person who, you know, yells loudest is the person that gets heard at, at different times. And I've heard some of those same things about Lime scooters or, oh, they're, you know, people are leaving them all over the city or these sort of things. It's like, it's been like two months. The fact that that many people are using them and that you see people young and old flying around the city on scooters. Yes, there is a downside to those sort of things, but you also have to just listen to the market sometimes and say, if that many people are using it and if they're using the bike lanes or or whatever, like we can figure out around this, but we've been trying to figure out for the past 40 years how to get more people on bikes. And there's an actual op- solution that is facing us. We should probably let it play out a little bit. Let's try it. I, I agree totally. And I personally, I'm a big believer, I think it's just you're describing, right? And sort of balance and diversity of modes. And I'm absolutely not a sort of radical anti-car activist. But I do think it's sort of ironic that you hear people complaining about how, well, people leave these bird or lime scooters all over the place. We've li- literally rebuilt huge portions of cities and giant metro areas so that we can leave our cars all over the place. I mean, yeah, exactly streets right. <laughs> are littered with cars. Parking lots are littered with cars. Buildings have been torn down to make way for places to leave our cars. And you're concerned about a couple scooters on the sidewalk? Like, We need to ha- come up with a system here that is balanced across all these things. And people are going to figure out how to do that in an appropriate way. And, and I would say the final piece on that is you know, 68% of car rides are single person driving. If we can right. cut that down to 58%, to 48%, you are talking about thousands of lives being saved and massive, massive amounts of, of differences for our society, for congestion, for, you know, I just saw a report that came out that said Lyft and Uber and these ride-sharing companies actually create a little bit more congestion than there used to be. And it's like, that is something that is so new that we can't look at a time horizon. It's like not enough data to know about the time horizon, in my opinion that we can really accurately describe because Lyme and Bird didn't exist three years ago. So we don't know what effect that will have. But like there's things where in the short term, potentially there are more cards on the road because people are getting where they want to go faster. 
And to that, I say, if it takes me 30 minutes less and costs me less money, that's more time I have to spend with my family and more time and more money I can spend on my family. And those are the type of things like choosing those type of decisions for our society is actually what we need to be focused on, like the end results of what this means for spending time with the people that we love. I, I agree with that completely. Okay, so the final piece that I think is really interesting is this idea of building and building simpler and how we've talked to Kieran Timberlake, we've talked to Katera, we've talked to a bunch of organizations about how to build simpler. And I think that there are things on the horizon that are so interesting with how we build. And in a city like Detroit, it would be something that I'm, I'm really interested to hear your take on is there's technology now with some of these prefab homes that you could build a home that sits up for the next 25 years. And as the city changes, you could take that home down and put it somewhere else. Do you think that those type of things, I mean, you're, you're, you're demolishing 40,000 homes that has created a large amount of waste, not the demolishing them, but the idea that we have to take and remove homes. How do you see the building of whether it's home, single family homes, whether it's other buildings, the change in how we can do that and how we can leverage land and the actual resources in a smarter way. From a, the perspective in Detroit, I think there's many elements of this that matter. The, the most important issue for us is really the cost of construction. And I think this applies a lot in cities like Detroit as well, where you're trying to induce growth but rents are still not nearly as high as they are in New York, which is great. I don't want them to be that high, but we need to get to a point where they're at least high enough to justify new construction. And it's still pretty expensive to build in many places, and it's getting more expensive. And part of that is national general economic success and the fact that the labor rate, the employment rate is pretty high. And so it's getting more expensive to purchase labor and then the inputs like steel, et cetera, in the building. And there's also a lot of local success where we're sort of a victim of our own success locally. There's so much more development going on locally in Detroit than there has been for decades that local construction companies are having a hard time sourcing labor. And it's only going to continue. We're, we've got a couple huge projects just kicking off a seven or $800 million tower downtown, which is going to be the tallest building in the city. There's a new multi-billion dollar bridge uh, to Canada that the state of Michigan and the province of Ontario are, have just kicked off and broke ground on a few weeks ago. So the number one concern we have about construction is the impact that rising construction costs have on our ability to continue developing Detroit's neighborhoods and to continue this growth cycle. So I, I'm certainly a big believer in the fact that someone is going to crack this nut, that when you look at the productivity growth in construction, it lags so many other sectors of the economy. It just hasn't seen the productivity gains that so many other places have. Someone's going to figure that out. And businesses like Katera are very interesting because of that. And when you do the implications in Detroit, or if you can shave, if you shave 10% off the cost of building a building, you've just unlocked a huge tranche of projects in Detroit that become financially viable, that contribute meaningfully to bringing density in our neighborhoods, that contribute meaningfully to building out our tax base and providing more opportunity for Detroiters. That's a huge deal. So we're certainly very supportive of innovations in trying to reduce that cost and, and hope, it, hope it works and hope it works quickly. Fantastic. And I, I think that that type of innovation and what we see, you know, Michael Green talked about the idea of you know, maybe six-story buildings are, are, maybe that's about the right height for a lot of these things. I mean, there's so much exploration of different cities and what works at, at different places. But, you know, with things like cross-laminated timber and building wooden buildings and yep. all of that sort of stuff, there's this idea that we could bring a beauty 
and a naturalness, naturalness, is that a word? Uh, the, <laughs> just the kind of natural beauty into these cities in a way that traditionally, you know, the concrete jungle or, or the concrete streets just kind of have, have made it felt like, you know, a large cinder block. And we can bring some of those things in. I mean, what are you excited about for the future of making cities more beautiful and making cities more natural and feeling feeling something that kind of has been lost over over time a little bit? I, I think a lot of it is, well, part of it's definitely what you mentioned, the sort of the changing way that buildings are built and creating more attractive structures in our built environment through that. A lot in Detroit, too, that we're really excited about is how you redeploy streets and public spaces in a way. And it gets back to this balanced question of what you serve in terms of cars versus pedestrians versus other users, including how much green space you have on the street and what that does, not just for the aesthetic value of that street, but also for the heat island effect and managing that, particularly in, in a time of global warming. Although I expect global warming on balance, at least from Detroit's locality, may just make our summers even more pleasant and our winters milder. So I'm not sure that's totally a bad thing here, although I certainly sympathize with all the other broader implications of that. I'm not trying to downplay them. And so really using these public spaces in a way that create more vibrant urban environments. And in Detroit and a lot of other cities, streets have been so sort of monopolized by cars. And again, I don't consider myself a radical anti-car advocate at all. It's all about balance. But bringing in greenery that helps to manage stormwater, that manages that outflows into the Great Lakes, at least here, that manages that heat island effect and that creates beautiful places to hang out, I think is a really exciting opportunity for, for just creating the basic quality of life that people want to spend time in. That's awesome. I love it. I, I couldn't agree more. And the, the heat island stuff is something that is one of the folks that we talked about, Lori Johnson, talked about just the idea that you could take away, like, why do we need concrete parking spots? Right. Like that alone in cities like Houston and a lot of the cities that are affected by those sort of things, there, there's really no reason. You just look at it and you're like, I mean, I guess, yeah, I, you know, maybe it's a little muddier for my car or maybe, you know, I step down onto some grass. But those type of small differences end up making a massive difference over time. Um, Completely agree. I, Part I, of it is like purely cultural. It's not that significant a difference in terms of the practical functionality in some cases. It's just people got used to something. And people can get used to something different because they did something else before that. Then those are the type of things that I think are such interesting things to think about. Like, why do we need sidewalks all over the fringes of cities that are concrete? Like, do we really need that? And then you think about like, is it safer? Is it this? But those are the type of mental exercises that I think we need to be we need to be looking at for the future of cities if we have certain ones that really struggle with the amount with storms and, and all of that. And it's a good mental exercise. Agreed. Okay, final final questions here. This is the lightning round. So we're just going to do a couple fun ones. These sure. are the easy ones. You did not get them ahead of time. Are you ready? Yes. What app on your phone are you using that is the most fun? I, I think I have an answer for this, which really doesn't make me sound like a fun person, but I use Instapaper a lot because I always spot stuff that I want to read and then use like random free moments in the day where I've I tried to force myself to not look at Facebook or other social media and instead to read like long form stuff on Instapaper that's saved so that I actually am doing something productive. I'm not sure if people consider that fun or not, but that's the one that comes to mind. Favorite time saving tool? I'd say there's sort of a, a, I know this isn't an app specific question as well, but partially in Detroit and now that we have more mass transit options, but particularly when I'm traveling, I'm like a mass transit freak really, really enjoy using it and finding the fastest way to get from A to B. And so using not just Google Map, but things like City Mapper that have really detailed data 
and that really good feed from like transit interruption data from things like the MTA in New York, that using a host of navigation tools for me is like, frankly, it saves time, but also it's just a pleasurable activity for people who are big mass transit nerds and enjoy the activity. Oh, I use it every day. I mean, I use, I use like three different different maps every time I go anywhere. Exactly right. And I can't tell if I do that because it's truly more effective or just because I really enjoy looking at maps of transit. Man, you're, you're preaching the choir. We, we have maps up in the office and I love maps. And I think part of it is is that exact thing. Yeah, people would joke in my office and the mayor's office, my office decoration consisted entirely of maps of Detroit through many different lenses, you know, the abandonment of properties, the mass transit routes, et cetera. And they said, don't you have pictures of your family? I'm like, I have pictures of my family at home it, and I love my family, but I'm really interested in this stuff and I, what I prefer to decorate my office with. Favorite podcast or recent book or show that you've been watching? You know, I've been listening a lot to conversations with Tyler, like the Tyler Cowen podcast, who I think is just one of the most insanely smart people around and his breadth of knowledge is so crazy that he can engage all sorts of different people in really insightful conversations. So that's one that I've been doing quite a lot recently. How about favorite one day getaway in Detroit? Something, and it's not even, I'm sure it's, it's sort of shorter than one day. It could be one afternoon or even a couple hours is when you say to people, is the river that flows through Detroit, America's largest industrial metropolis, a nice place to swim? If you haven't been here, I think your default assumption is that sounds terrible and it's actually lovely. It's beautiful Great Lakes water flowing from Lake Huron down into Lake Erie. It's beautiful color of blue and a really nice place to swim. So there's an island in the Detroit River called Belle Isle, which is owned by the city but run as a state park. And you can bike over to Belle Isle and just hang out swimming in the Detroit River, either at the main beach or at a sort of a side beach, uh, which people affectionately called Hipster Beach, which is a little more hidden. But either way, it's a great way to spend a summer afternoon in Detroit. What makes a great city? To me, a great city, it goes back to the themes we talked about around opportunity, that there's all these superficial aspects of a great city, like the cultural elements and the scale of the parks and the soaring architecture, the quality of the restaurant scene. But cities are really great because they provide people opportunity. And that's sometimes opportunity to be the sort of person you want to be because it affords a diversity and level of acceptance that they may not have had in a non-urban environment. But it's ultimately really about economic opportunity and the opportunity to make something better for yourself. And that, that to me, is the defining characteristic of a great city. It's why, you know, we mentioned sort of these mega cities earlier. If, if, if you're someone from the U.S. and you go to a place like Lagos, Nigeria, you may think that it looks dirty and messy and unsafe. But to a lot of Nigerians, that looks like pure opportunity because that's where the jobs are happening and that's where they go to make a life for themselves. And I think in degrees, great or small, that's what is true about really great cities all across the world and, and what we certainly believe is true about Detroit and only becoming more so as it continues to come back. What thing about the future of cities are you most excited about? I think it really is these transportation elements. And not just because I enjoy geeking out on all the maps that show them, but having using technology to have a more diverse way to get around is just personally so pleasurable to not be locked into one mode. So when you want to use the scooter, you can use it. When you want an Uber pool, you can use it. When you want to take an Uber to the bus, you can do that if that's provided. Providing these really fun and easy and time-saving ways to get around town, I think, is only going to get better if we don't screw it up. That the technology is going to afford us the opportunity for it to be better. If the public policies actually support that, it's going to be really a much more pleasant and interesting way to get around a lot of our cities. Uh, and that's going to be a fun thing to see. Any final words? 
Uh, no, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Future of Cities. And thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.